The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Navigating Evolving Standards of Care in Renal Cell Carcinoma. Expert insights on selecting and sequencing targeted and immunotherapy options and a look at emerging strategies. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash TRX 860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. Well, welcome everyone. Uh, so great to see everyone here in person uh, and certainly online at uh, ASCO GU22. Uh, I think we're going to have a great conversation today around uh, evolving standards in kidney cancer therapy. Now, David and I have actually done this several times before. We've never seen an audience this big, so Tian, I think the credit goes to you. So thank you. Thank you for that, Tian. Um, but we have a packed agenda tonight. Um, I think many of you are familiar with a bunch of uh, David's work, Tian's work. We really want to thank uh, Peerview and the Medical Learning Institute and Casey Cure, who has a really unique contribution to the, tonight's program uh, for what they've done uh, in terms of putting this program together. And we're going to jump right into the content. So we've decided to take an approach in which we are going to focus on a couple of uh, different concepts. Um, if you focus your attention on the right-hand side, we'll discuss some of the new advances in the frontline and perioperative setting for renal cell carcinoma. Uh, in the second portion, we'll take you on a walk through some of the recent updates in terms of data for frontline therapy of RCC. And then we'll conclude discussing novel approaches and the approach to the refractory patient. So uh, just for um, a little context here, we're going to start with a case. And this is you know, something that I think that the three of us are pretty used to seeing in clinic. A 58-year-old gentleman who presents with nausea, vomiting, fatigue, and weight loss. He has an abdominal CT that shows a 10-centimeter mass, and he undergoes a partial left nephrectomy. Uh, this is a 10.4-centimeter tumor with distal renal vein involvement, negative margins, grade 3, um, no sarcomatoid or rhabdoid features, clear cell histology dominant, you get the staging back, and on the report, it reads pathologic T2N1. This patient recovers well. Post-surgical imaging is clear. Um, we're going to get into some of the data in just a second, but quick one-sentence answer for what you do in this case. David? Sorry, from taking out the tumor? Oh, oh in terms of adjuvant therapy, what do you oh, think, yes. surveillance okay. or adjuvant? Yeah, I would start with taking, having someone else take out the tumor. <laughs> <laughs> Thank God. Okay, you're a medical oncologist. And then, it, I, you know, I think the way the data is looking, and we'll get an update again uh, at this meeting, which we're looking forward to, you know, we're probably offering this patient immune therapy with pembrolizumab in the adjuvant setting with the caveats that, you know, the data set is early. You know, we see certainly improvements in disease-free survival, which we'll talk about. Uh, not, and a trend towards overall survival improvements, which is encouraging. So we're certainly having that conversation with the patient, also balancing it with the, the side effects that sometimes can be uh, lifelong. So it's a, it's a good conversation to have with the patient. It's a great sneak peek. And we'll, we'll get back to this case in just a second, but I want to turn it over to Tian to discuss the landscape of perioperative therapy with us. Tian? Great. Thank you so much, Monty. All right. Let's get started here. Um, so, as we were hearing, localized disease is very much a surgical um, problem, and uh, our urologists are often offering surgery for locally advanced disease that uh, is resectable. Um, and so, and there's, um, while we have quite a few uh, neoadjuvant strategies for patients with other solid tumors, um, there really haven't been uh, advances in perioperative systemic therapies for renal cell carcinoma in terms of neoadjuvant prior to surgery. 
Um, but nephrectomy itself can certainly offer um, great advances in terms of a cure in early localized disease. Um, but for stage two and stage three kidney cancers, the risk of recurrence is certainly not zero. And so how do we talk about this uh, with our patients with 20 to 40% of them experiencing a local or distant recurrence within a, a, a two to five year period? Um, so certainly there's no approved um, preoperative therapies for locally advanced disease, um, although we're certainly thinking about it um, as patients are going to their nephrectomy and the next steps. Um, so we're going to talk through how we decide um, in the post-operative um, setting what patients uh, might be amenable to, um, so to approve therapies in the post-op setting. Um, I just highlight here for you um, a number of cl phase two clinical trials in the neoadjuvant setting. Um, there's five uh, uh, that, have, uh, that are ongoing. Um, the neo-AVAX, I will draw your attention to the middle of the slide, um, where uh, Dr. Axel Bex will be presenting um, the data from axitinib and avelumab um, given in the uh, preoperative uh, neoadjuvant setting. Um, for non-metastatic clear cell kidney cancer uh, on Saturday. So that's an important um, study to, to look forward to. Uh, but mul multiple studies ongoing um, and um, many that will uh, combine uh, our TKIs and immunotherapies uh, with great effect in, in early um, preoperative settings. And we certainly look forward to all of these data um, coming forward in, in the next few years. So as we go into the adjuvant setting and post-op, so uh, our patient had undergone his surgery and we're thinking through his risk of recurrence and thinking about um, benefit versus risk um, in terms of giving adjuvant therapy. So what are we having those discussions around benefit versus risk? And so the benefit certainly is around uh, potentially preventing disease recurrence and hopefully by doing that, prolonging their overall survival. Um, but what are the risks in terms of toxicities of treatment, cost implications, the, and the inconveniences of coming uh, to treatment uh, into the, the medical center? So in 2017, um, we did have an FDA approval um, of adjuvant sunitinib in this setting based on the results of S-TRAC, um, which was uh, uh, positive for um, improving uh, disease-free survival outcomes. Um, but you know, in terms of treatment with a year of sunitinib in the adjuvant setting, um, it had pretty um, significant toxicities with the usual TKI toxicities of hypertension and hand-foot syndrome. Um, and the inconvenience and cost of treatment for the year, usually um, in our real-world practices, um, was not widely adopted. Um, and if and when it was recommended, um, adjuvant sunitinib was usually given for uh, younger patients who may experience higher anxiety levels about disease recurrence and uh, could handle um, the, the toxicities for a year. And remember in this adjuvant setting, we're talking about patients who have had their uh, tumors removed and otherwise have re recovered well and are otherwise um, uh, not very symptomatic at baseline. So what are our phase three adjuvant trials with checkpoint inhibitors now that we're in the checkpoint inhibitor era? Um, we list them here for you um, on the side. Um, there are five of them total. Um, we've seen some results of Emotion 010 um, and then Keynote 564 we'd like to um, highlight for you tonight. Um, PROSPER uh, fully accrued. It was a perioperative study of nivolumab given one dose before surgery and then followed by um, postoperative nivolumab. Um, and that fully accrued within the cooperative groups last August. Um, so we're awaiting data from that. And then the Rampart and Checkmate 914 studies are, are currently ongoing. 
So as we saw at ASCO um, uh, in 2021, um, uh, Dr. Schwerian and his colleagues presented the data from the phase three Keynote 564 study. Many of you are familiar with this data now showing the uh, randomization between pembrolizumab and placebo uh, given for a year in this context, improved median disease-free survival rates. Here you see the uh, Kaplan-Meier curve on the left. Uh, with a median follow-up at that point of 24 months, we saw a hazard ratio of 0.68, which was statistically significant. And there was a trend toward improvement in overall survival, um, although not enough events had occurred um, so that we could see a clinically meaningful distance, uh, uh, difference. And as we looked at safety and quality of life within patients who were treated with pembrolizumab for a year, we saw the usual immunotherapy-mediated toxicities, um, rashes, colitis, um, endocrinopathies, et cetera, um, about 20% of which uh, led to discontinuation of pembrolizumab during the year. Um, and these safety results were certainly in line with our expected uh, side effects of pembrolizumab for a year, and no new safety signals were, were observed. Um, there were some uh, quality of life measures that were presented also, um, comparing patients treated with pembrolizumab or placebo, and these were uh, very similar in, in terms of symptom burden. So in terms of thinking about pembrolizumab, um, in November of 2021, we received a FDA label um, of treatment with pembrolizumab for adjuvant treatment of patients with kidney cancer with intermediate or high or high risk of recurrence following nephrectomy. Um, and this really, I think, depends on patient preferences and priorities as we have these discussions in our everyday practice. Um, we're th certainly still thinking about this risk-benefit uh, ratio. Um, I think the grade three and higher toxicities is lower. Um, it is extending uh, our time until disease recurrence for sure. There's a question around whether it extends overall survival um, in the longer-term follow-up. Um, severe toxicities, though, when we talk about these treatments with patients, um, these severe immune-mediated toxicities currently can be uh, life-threatening and life-altering um, over many months and even lifelong. Um, there's a cost, certainly, to patients and payers in this health system, and IV treatments are given every three or every six weeks, um, and certainly there's an inconvenience of coming back and forth to the cancer centers. Um, so I think it's a, a, all dependent on uh, discussion with patients about their preferences and priorities, their tolerances for toxicity, and the goals for treatment and shared decision-making. And of note, on Saturday, we will um, see the updated um, abstracts of the 30-month follow-up of Keno 564, um, where Dr. Schwery will present during the oral presentation um, section um, of the renal day, um, and we'll see that um, in the abstract currently, the 30-month follow-up for disease-free survival has still maintained with a hazard ratio of 0.63. So just uh, reminding people of uh, the ongoing studies in this adjuvant space, um, the Checkmate 914 study is still currently open in enrolling patients um, uh, post-resection in the post-op setting and randomizing patients to either nivolumab with a bilimumab um, doublet or nivolumab alone or placebo. The PROSPER study I mentioned earlier has uh, fully accrued through the cooperative groups um, in August of last year. Um, this was a perioperative study where patients received one dose of nivolumab before surgery and then adjuvant uh, nivolumab um, for up to a year um, or surgery alone on the standard of care um, uh, portion of the study. 
So I, I hope we will see uh, um, the effects of um, Prosper and the data from Prosper in the uh, year or two to come. So how about patients? What do patients care about when they're thinking through adjuvant therapy? And this is a really unique um, take uh, and survey level data um, collected from KC Cure and our friends there. Um, and they asked this question of if you were able to receive treatment to prevent recurrence of kidney cancer, what would be important for our patients? And so obviously many of them care about improving uh, time until death, right? Improving overall survival. Um, and a significant portion also uh, care about prolonged disease-free survival and uh, delaying time until recurrence. Um, interestingly, I thought um, the, the fewer percentage, 43% of these patients cared about the toxicity of the treatment, and then uh, a fewer percentage still, 37% cared about whether insurance covered or not these treatments. Um, and so patients are willing to use adjuvant therapy if the treatment prolongs overall or disease-free survival, and toxicity of the treatments is perhaps less important to patients um, rather than the efficacy endpoints. Um, in terms of uh, fear of cancer recurrence, um, they also ask the question of whether um, uh, the patients are um, in, in this anxiety level of, you know, we hear a lot about scan anxiety and um, patients' well-being um, during uh, time uh, since diagnosis and as they're being followed along over um, interval scans. And so patients of, um, with distress, as, they, um, as you look across um, time uh, in, in, on the bottom on the x-axis, as time goes by and as um, emotional well-being actually um, uh, decreases in terms of distress, as um, patients um, get their initial scans, they're at heightened awareness and heightened anxiety, and as time goes on, um, that level of distress decreases. Um, but we should certainly be aware of these patient perspectives and how patients will interact as they uh, approach and um, value this uh, risk and benefit analysis. So we're back to the case, and I'll turn it back over to Monty. That was a great, great overview, Tian. Fantastic slides and uh, really nice uh, landscape uh, picture that you gave us for perioperative therapy. So we're going to get back to this case. And maybe Tian, you know, David offered an opinion right at the outset regarding how he'd manage this T2N1 patient with clear cell histology, no sarcomatoid or rhabdoid features. Any, any thoughts? Are you leaning the same way? Sure, yeah. I mean, this patient had one out of five lymph nodes that were positive, so I take that with a measure of degree of uh, risk of uh, disease recurrence. Um, I often go into the uh, Assure nomogram online. Fox Chase has a wonderful um, website um, to look at uh, risk of dis um, uh, disease recurrence based on um, patho pathologic features and patient features. And so I use those numbers to help guide the discussion, and um, I think with nodal positivity, this patient probably has a, a decent amount of risk to recur, and so I would um, think about offering adjuvant pembrolizumab and talk him through uh, the risks and benefits. That makes sense to me. So, you know, David knows this. I like to throw in some zingers here, totally unplanned, okay? So, so David, what if this patient actually had a pure papillary tumor? Uh, no sarcomatoid features, no clear cell features. Would you offer this patient adjuvant therapy then? Uh, well, it's a data-free zone, so I can pretty much say whatever I want to say at this point. Um, so we, the short answer is we don't know. Uh, what we do know is that pembrolizumab, um, at least in Keynote 427, was active in papillary kidney cancer with the response rate in the metastatic setting being about 25%. So you might be able to extrapolate that 
um, to a clear cell, to a, to an adjuvant setting and say there's probably some activity here. Exactly how much is hard until we enroll more patients with papillary kidney cancer on these trials, which we obviously should do because, you know, they represent maybe upwards of 15 or 20 percent of our our patients, and they often present with nodal involvement. Non-clear cell tumors tend to um, spread to the nodes in some ways more than clear cell. Um, so it's an important question. We need more data, but it's certainly something you could consider in the, in the motivated patient. And, and what would you do? Can you give us a yes or no on this one? What do you think? Well, I would certainly offer it, but offer you have, it. it's a balanced okay. discussion, and you cannot say, I, I know this is going to be helpful, and it, it could be harmful. A lot of it has to do with the, it, the patient's willingness to accept a certain amount of risk. Um, you know, so if they said, I'm motivated, I want to try it, you certainly can try it. Um, yeah, so I would, I would certainly offer it. Okay, okay, that's totally fair. So I have another zinger for you, uh, Tian, if that's okay. okay. So, you know, just imagine this being a patient with a 6.5 centimeter tumor. So this is pathologic T1B, okay? Let's say there's no sarcomatoid features. Let's say it's, it's grade three, okay? Um, node negative, would you offer this patient uh, adjuvant therapy in that scenario? Right, and so an earlier um, stage tumor, smaller with less aggressive features, no nodal involvement, I think the risk for recurrence is probably 10, 15%, and so then the absolute benefit of giving a year of pembrolizumab is probably less um, clear and, and, and smaller absolute benefit for sure. Um, and so in that setting, uh, you know, we can still talk about it. And uh, sometimes my sur our surgeons um, are already talking about it and having those conversations. And if the patient's still interested, they're coming over to have more conversations in the medical oncology setting. Uh, personally, I feel there's probably more toxicity in those settings than benefit of early pembrolizumab in this adjuvant setting, and so I would probably dissuade the patient from um, a year of pembrolizumab. So, so more or less a no, right? I mean, I, I tend to agree with that. I, I think that that's the right approach there. Um, you know, and, and I thought I ran out of zingers, but I do have one more. Uh, David, I'm going to throw this one to you if that's okay. Um, so uh, <laughs> imagine this is a patient who's had metastasectomy now. Yep. Um, so patient comes in, let's say he had his primary removed three years ago, okay, comes in and has uh, two three-centimeter tumors removed from his lung surgically, okay, three years later. Yep. What do you think? Adjuvant Pembro? Uh, yes, um, for sure. I think the chance of that person recurring again in their lifetime is 80 90%. We know uh, PD-1's active in clear cell patients. Uh, some of the benefit, you could say a fair chunk of the benefit we're seeing thus far in this trial is being driven by that M1 resected group. The, you know, this is slightly different than that. You, you threw a twist in there, yeah. which is fine. You can, a zinger. You know, zinger, <laughs> yes. Uh, but but so those M1 resected patients are doing pr uh, pretty well seeing adjuvant Pembro early. So I, I would definitely offer uh, in that setting, it's probably the place where I'm most clearly advising people uh, to get it at this point. You know, but I think Tian brings up a lot of important points, and we've had a challenge in melanoma where PD-1 is also approved in the stage three setting. It was used broadly, at least initially, now is being in some ways used less uh, in certain stage patients. And, we, you know, we really need better selection criteria than just these clinical criteria for identifying patients. We don't want to be putting patients at risk who are probably cured of their disease. Um, so we need a lot more work in this, in this space, as she suggested. Actually, I have a couple more zingers. So let's envision this patient actually progressed 
uh, after adjuvant pembrolizumab therapy. This is something that we're going to have to be dealing with pretty soon in the clinics, and it's a, it's a tough one. I really don't think there's one right answer over here. But I wanted to have a discussion around this. So let's say you put your patient in this scenario, again, T2N1, on adjuvant pembrolizumab, and what if they progress during adjuvant therapy, David, uh, during that one year of treatment? What would you offer them as their frontline approach? Would you duplicate you know, PD-1 frontline? Would you give them nevo-ipi? So until we see the results of trials like yours, okay. contact O3 trial, which is looking at PDL1 in the second line setting and the post PD1 setting. Right now there's zero evidence that PD1 or PDL1 salvages a PD1 failure. Okay. Zero. So if you although we do it all the time in the clinic, people are giving, you know, rotating combos in patients, but there's no data. So if patient progresses on PD-1, you could argue there's no data that PD-1 will salvage that patient. So you're moving on to something else, probably a different mechanism. I'm saying a single agent TKI is certainly, certainly a lot of data supporting that decision. But going with, say, combo-based PD-1 while failing on PD-1, you're probably not helping your patient in yeah. that setting. That, that, that makes perfect sense to me. And what if we, like, change this, tweak it a little bit, Tian? So this patient didn't progress while on adjuvant pembrolizumab, but instead about six months later. What would you do there? Uh, that six-month time point, I think, is a, a hard one to deal with. You know, we're thinking that, you know, are, are they out of the window of benefit from the initial PD-1 therapy, right? right. And um, there's some data from uh, nivolumab-treated patients that T-cells can be activated some six to nine months later after their last dose. So. Um, to me, that, that is a tricky window. Are they really refractory or not to uh, T-cell activation and PD-1 inhibition? Um, I would certainly have a conversation and offer our uh, frontline um, treatment options at this moment, although it's hard to tell. We don't have data on, uh, I agree with David completely, that we don't have data uh, for people who have progressed after frontline um, sort of adjuvant PD-1 therapy. So, but I, I think still it's a first-line uh, metastatic uh, discussion, and we can talk about all the approved therapy options. Um, and, and, and see uh, which one of those uh, the patient might want to go on. And, and this might be a little easier, David. What about two years out? I mean, is everything back on the table at that point? Well, we need more data. So we need your Atezo, Cabo data. We need the TiVo, Nevo result. But until we have data, I think the, the answer to that question comes down to, do you think there's something called PD-1 deficiency? So meaning, do you think in patients who are on PD-1 and getting some benefit, stable or shrinking, that, it, that they need that chronic blockade? There may, you know, we don't really know the answer to that, but the answer in some patients may be yes. Right. And so in those patients, if they needed chronic blockade, you, you had them under control while they were on it, you, you're making the argument that by reestablishing it, you're gonna get that disease under control. We obviously need, prospective trials, but there's at least some, as Tian was suggesting, there's at least some retrospective data that some patients who come off in response can be salvaged with, you know, the re-addition of PD-1. So at two years, we're probably offering it again, I would say. Perfect, perfect. Well, I, that, that, was a, that was a tough set of scenarios there, so I appreciate you uh, bearing with me. Uh, and I'm actually gonna jump into a, a short discussion here on frontline treatments. In the context of this talk, 
We're not going to walk through all the details of every one of these four pivotal trials that have really shaken up the landscape of frontline treatment for metastatic renal cell carcinoma. Uh, this is a slide that I've seen, you know, both in talks like this and all over Twitter, and you know, they're constantly tweaked and updated. Um, but today we'll try to add some context. We're going to discuss this case, which is a 58-year-old gentleman who actually has metastatic disease emerging and something that we would characterize as being favorable risk. You can see his laboratory parameters there. He maintains good Karnofsky performance status. And towards the end of this discussion, we'll go through and I'll ask David and Tian how they might approach a favorable risk patient like this. Um, so again, the general design of these trials uh, lends itself to cross-trial comparisons, although, of course, we're not supposed to do that. Uh, you can see here that each one of these checkpoint inhibitor plus TKI combinations has been juxtaposed against sinitinib at the same dose, 50 milligrams, four weeks on, two weeks off. Um, and we'll go quickly through some of the updated results here. So, you know, this is the data from Keynote 426. Um, and when you look at the data for this, you can see that the benefit of Axipembro still stands. We've reached uh, median overall survival, as you can see on the left-hand side there, with Axipembro of 45 months. If you shift your attention to the right, you can see a, a modest benefit in terms of progression-free survival, four months there uh, with Axipembro versus sinitinib therapy. Uh, response rates uh, in the most recent updated data sets indicate a response rate of 60% with a combination versus 40% with uh, Sinitinib. One thing that I'll point out here is that the complete response rate appears to have climbed up a little bit to 10% in this data set. Uh, one interesting element of Keynote 426 is it gives us some understanding of how patients might do with treatment discontinuation. So these patients were allowed to discontinue checkpoint inhibitor after two years. And you can see here, sort of magnified on the right-hand side, the fact that there's some attrition, but not a lot. There's still some patients who really continue to have protracted benefit uh, from therapy. Now, this is the updated data from Checkmate 9ER. And in fact, you know, we, we tried to keep these slide sets very timely, but we're actually going to get another update on this data set on Saturday. We'll discuss that very briefly. Um, but you can see here uh, what, what I really sort of interpret as being, you know, a more striking difference in terms of progression-free survival uh, between the two treatment arms here, a median PFS of 16.6 months uh, with Cabonevo versus 8.3 months with sinitinib in this context. Um, this is uh, the Kaplan-Meier curves that reflect the data that I just showed you there. Um, and you can see here that longer follow-up, the PFS, the OS, and the response data were sustained with Cabonevo versus sinitinib. Um, you can see that there's a report of the final OS hazard ratio in abstract form already. So you'll see the full data set flushed out on Saturday here. And again, you know, consistent benefit in OS uh, hanging with an overall survival hazard ratio of 0.7. Um, this is a, a brief update on the CLEAR data set. So you can see here, you know, with CLEAR, we see probably the highest response rate uh, amongst the TKI-IO combos, albeit, you know, I'll point out one of the nuances here. We're using a dose of lenvatinib at 20 milligrams. Editorial comment, I think that's a pretty challenging dose for patients to tolerate. I'm, I've become much more familiar with and uh, I, I think perhaps uh, developed a stronger affinity for the dosing of cabozantinib at 40 milligrams in that frontline setting. Much easier, I think, for patients to tolerate. But nonetheless, you do see that uh, this particular regimen hits a high watermark for response rate. CR rate is 16% here. And this is the overall survival data here. 
um, you can see here that median OS still wasn't reached in the treatment arm with an updated analysis, and the hazard ratio here is 0.72. I always found it a little curious here that you see such a striking difference in terms of PFS, but really, you know, the OS hazard ratios are still pretty comparable. I think this is actually really important data. You know, some people, you know, sort of debate the merits of, you know, looking at quality of life across these studies. Admittedly, you know, our metrics aren't perfect. They have, you know, a really outstanding fellow, Chris Bergerow, who's really trying to sort of turn some of these metrics around and how we look at quality of life in kidney cancer. Nonetheless, using the metrics that we do have, um, my interpretation walking away from the data that we've seen, for instance, from the CLEAR trial so far, mirrors what I've seen in clinical practice. You might derive clinical benefit from the regimen, but in terms of quality of life, not necessarily very different from sunitinib. That was my general takeaway. I'd be curious to know what my colleagues think. In 9ER, and David's going to show you some of the uh, data from Checkmate 214, I would say maybe a more striking improvement in quality of life. Uh, and for me, that's a real decision point in terms of how to manage patients with advanced renal cell. I do factor in you know, the, the, the dosing nuances that I'd mentioned, the quality of life data that you're seeing here, and it's really made Cabo-Nevo my preferred regimen in the upfront setting. I'll quickly mention here, and we can dive into some of these nuances, uh, the management of toxicity with these combination regimens. It's tough if you and the audience are, are just sort of familiarizing yourself with using some of these combinations. Very important to keep in mind that there is really a set of overlapping potential toxicities with these strategies. Um, you, for instance, may see hepatitis that could be attributable to either one of the two agents, diarrhea that could be attributable to either one of the two. And, and to really sort of tease that out, I think we've become comfortable with the premise of stopping the TKI for a period of time, seeing if that side effect dissipates to some extent, and then you know, uh, uh, determining whether or not um, the patient really has a tox attributable to the TKI if it dissipates, or if the toxicity is persistent or worsening, likely secondary to I.O. Um, so we're going to get back to this case right now, and I think we're doing well in terms of time, so I'm going to try to probe a little deeply here. So if you see this patient with favorable risk disease with the descriptors noted here, Tian, what are you thinking in terms of frontline management? Sure. Well, in my mind, favorable risk disease still uh, is less inflammatory and probably more angiogenically driven. So you know, uh, using all the data that you've just presented so nicely, you know, I certainly think that a TKI-IO combination makes sense. And we would talk through uh, all the different uh, combinations that are approved. Um, and, and, and what those, uh, the dosing strategies and the, the, the actual treatments look like, the oxypembro, pabonevo, and levatinib with pembrolizumab. Um, do I, I don't necessarily have a favorite. I think sometimes, you know, in, in more disease, patients with more disease burden who are more symptomatic, I may choose a cabonevo approach or a lenvatinib pembrolizumab approach. Uh, but for patients who are otherwise not very symptomatic and we're just seeing sort of not lung nodules growing on routine uh, uh, scans, those patients, I think, you know, there are still options for axitinib, pembrolizumab, saving the cabozantinib and levatinib for later lines of treatment. Interesting. Interesting. I, I always like asking David about this scenario because I, I find you always have a very unique stance on favorable risk disease, but uh, <laughs> let's, let's hear your thoughts here. U unique is one word for it, <laughs> yes. So you, in, in general, I think it depends on what... Um, Choosing what you do in good risk depends on what the patient's goals are, uh, and it depends on which endpoints you favor the most. Um, I tend to be biased towards long-term endpoints, which we'll talk about in the next scenario. Um, and those are obviously critically important for a person this age. You know, they obviously want extension and survival, but they also want the opportunity to potentially come off treatment if possible. 
and that's available with CTLA-4, PD-1 um, in some small number of cases, even with good risk disease. Um, so that's what we would do, that's what we would offer. Um, but with no further ado, uh, David, I'll turn it over to you. Thanks, Monty, and I appreciate the invitation, and it's definitely TN that people are here to see, that's for sure. <laughs> She's doing a great job, okay. Um, so going back to that case, um, and I'm going to argue for dual I.O. therapy and hopefully not get arrested um, <laughs> for recommending something that's not indicated. So, and Monty mentioned this before, this is sort of the other trial. Almost um, all of the VEGF PD-1 studies had a very similar design. This uh, design was different in that for a couple of reasons. One, it's a pure I.O. Uh, approach with PD-1 and CTLA-4 combination um, blockade. Um, and it also focused, it focused more on intermediate and poor risk, meaning the good risk, percent of good risk patients in this trial was uh, limited. Even though it was substantial, it was limited. So here's the data that's been updated. The, one of the other differences between this data set is it's a year or two ahead of the others. So we have a little bit better sense of what's happening out at five years because our patients have reached that point. And I, you know, I, what I really would like you guys to do is just sort of focus on the shape of these curves. Let's just talk more art than science here. Um, and this is looking at overall survival, both in the intent to treat population and the intermediate and poor risk, as well as the favorable. And you see this, the improvement in overall survival, which you see in all of these trials, is not as impressive early on. So if you're focused on early endpoints, certainly VEGF PD-1 wins on those, but the benefits are maintained in overall survival over time. So like true immunotherapy, the data gets better with time. It's like sort of like a, a wine here. Um, also the data at intermediate and poor risk is, is maintained and that's where, where the combinations are proved. But take a look at the favorable risk population I don't want to make too much of this, but right now the curve for um, the combination of immunotherapy is actually above VEGF-TKIs. This is something we suggested might happen uh, a couple years ago. People thought we were pretty crazy when we suggested it, and it's obviously early and small numbers and all the rest, but I would argue that this is the, going to be the only curve that, that is over VEGF alone in good risk patients. Okay, and then the question is, then what? You know, then what do we do if it turns out that even though uh, Ipinevo is not approved in good risk patients, overall survival is numerically greater, hazard ratio less than one. We'll see if we get there. We might get there. Also, shapes of the curves here, um, and this is a key, um, you know, shape. You're looking at flatness here. You're looking at flatness at the tail of the curve or plateau in these curves for almost all of them, intent to treat, intermediate and poor, favorable risk, and you see, you know, drooping, even in the good risk population for sunitinib, that same drooping or sagging, you know, which happens to all of us at a certain point, certainly happened to me, <laughs> um, is the problem with VEGF-PD-1 approaches, that over time those curves drop off, um, and it, that's not what we're seeing with progression-free survival here um, with CTLA-4-PD-1. Um, this, this analysis is a little biased, looking at responses at five years of follow-up, but essentially this in the next slideshow is that if you make it out to five years in response, you're likely to stay in response. 
maybe not uh, that surprising that you can see some of those ongoing responses in about 60% of patients who make it uh, to five years. Um, similarly, looking at the curves, looking at the response outcomes in those long-term survivors, you know, so you're, you're sort of focused here on the patients who are sort of winners, okay, um, which I think is okay, but is not great. We really, as a field, we need to really focus on everyone, um, you know, if we're going to make judgments that impact patients, because it, oh, by focusing on everyone, that gives you the data you need to have that conversation with patients initially. You know, focusing on how patients do if they make it to five years doesn't really help you with that initial uh, clinical decision. Um, one of the interesting stories about immunotherapy is, you know, treatment-related adverse events can be impressive, they can be serious, they can be lifelong, they can even be life-threatening, but most of them happen in the first six months. So as you go, particularly as, you, as the CTLA-4 is removed from the regimen, the incidence of side effects goes down, and patients generally feel pretty good as they get from months 12 to 18 to 24 because you're not adding new issues for them. And that is sort of shown, as Monty was showing before with the other trials, that's also reflected in some quality of life outcomes, which is quality of life tends to be better, probably not surprisingly for those patients who are just on single agent uh, PD-1. And we're going to get an update on the quality of life data um, at this meeting as well. But one of the things that I think is a weakness for the field is our, the way we look at quality of life data is not consistent across these trials. But also, importantly, it stops at a certain point. It often stops a few months after patients stop therapy. And what I, would, what I think we need to do in future trials is follow quality of life in those patients who are able to live longer off treatment but we don't really have that information now. I would suggest that it probably is pretty good, but we haven't checked it. So this is what I was getting, back, uh, getting at before. I mean, we're talking about a 58-year-old uh, person. You know, obviously overall survival is very important, and we showed those survival curves, you know, showing those patients out at, out at five years, which is great. But this is sort of a secondary benefit that you see, uh, particularly with pure IO regimens, we may see it with VEGF PD-1, although we haven't, it, that hasn't, this story has not emerged there, but we need to look for it. But in the patients here, th this is looking at treatment-free intervals and the so-called swimmer's plots. You know, these are patients who are getting deep responses. This is data um, that Dr. Mozer presented, uh, Laurence Abiger has also presented this data, looking at patients who are on treatment and then staying in, a, you know, when they come off treatment, staying in response and you see those orange um, swimmer's lanes of patients who are actually living in a remission of their disease. And if you ask a patient with metastatic disease what they would want the most is not just long-term survival, but the chance of being alive off treatment so they can go back to their normal routine, go back to work, spending time with friends and family, off side effects, not to mention the effects on cost. And a small percentage of patients with CTLA-4 PD-1 can get this benefit. But this analysis is biased. And because it's biased, I think we should move away from it. Why is it biased? Because it only focuses on the winners. What we need to do as a field is focus on all patients from the beginning of treatment and look at a sort of a comprehensive survival analysis of how do they spend their time, whether it's on protocol treatment, you know, on subsequent treatment, um, or in what we call treatment-free survival, which is that time between protocol treatment and the next subsequent treatment. 
You know, so w when we do that, we create this um, new endpoint, which we're calling treatment-free survival, which is looking at all the patients on the Checkmate 214 study. What you're looking at here in the different colors is the different times the patient spent in these different states. So in green, it's the time they spent on treatment. And in this sort of dark, I don't even know what to call it, sort of brownish color, um, that's the time they spent on subsequent treatment, right? And in pink and purple, that's the treatment-free survival period for all the patients, either in the favorable risk or intermediate and poor or in the entire group. And what do you see when you look at that? I mean, you don't even need to be a statistician to see what, what it shows, but so survival is greater in all patients, right? In, in the intermediate and poor patients. Um, but treatment-free survival is twice as long in the intermediate and poor group and in that favorable risk group, so in this patient right now where he's not, where ipinevo is not yet indicated, it's three times as long. So patients are as likely to be alive if they get sutent versus ipinevo, but they're three times more likely based on this analysis to be alive off treatment. So then it becomes a discussion with the patient. What do you, what, what do you prefer? You know, do you prefer a VEGF-based regimen where, where the toxicity and risk might be less and survival, at least initially, is impressive? Or do you want a chance at, at not only survival but being off treatment, taking on extra risk? Because there's no question that when you add CTLA-4 to the mix, you add extra side effects. But by doing this comprehensive analysis, we're looking at everyone, not just the winners, not just the patients who respond, but those patients who who um, fail to respond, those patients who have horrible toxicity, all of that is in a treatment-free survival analysis, and it shows you an added layer of potential benefit, which some patients, not all, might want to strive for. You know, they might want to take on that extra risk of combination um, immunotherapy as initial therapy, even if they are good risk, like this patient um, in the case. So this is um, a survey that Casey Cure ran, you know, looking at this question about what, what are the patient's perspectives about treatment discontinuation? And, you know, as Monty said, some of my, some of my beliefs are unique, and you could say odd or outside the, the lines. You know, this, this survey shows you we, we're really not, what I'm talking about is not well accepted by medical oncologists. It's not even well accepted yet by patients. So we have a lot of work to do. So this is the question, and it says, current treatments for kidney cancer require continuous therapy. However, research, like what I just described to you, suggests that patients might be able to safely discontinue after a period of time. If your doctor suggested stopping, you know, how do you feel? And so 58% of patients said they'd be anxious. You know, that's a problem for my side of the argument. You know, we need to do much more education. We need to talk to them about the data with treatment-free intervals and treatment-free survival, and we need to try to improve those numbers. And then they asked the question, would you feel safer being able to avoid future side effects? And only 12% chose that. So, you know, so we, we certainly have some work to do, and the Casey Cure, you know, points out that patients are gonna be anxious about stopping uh, treatment, at least with diseases like kidney cancer, till we generate more data and educate more patients and clinicians. I think I stopped ahead of schedule. That's, that's fantastic. Dave, I, I gotta commend you, because every time we come to this discussion around good risk disease, I think you provide a more and more compelling and, 
and data-driven arguments. So I, I definitely think that you know, you, you've really bolstered your argument with a lot of this emerging uh, information from Checkmate 214. Um, so, you know, we have a couple of questions from the audience, some related to the previous presentation, some related to this one. But, you know, I'm going to start by asking you about, you know, how we can get at the right patient for Nevoipi. You know, Tian had alluded to the fact that perhaps, you know, patients who are favorable risk are less inflamed. I think probably the most commonly cited figure in any kidney cancer talk over the past five years has been David's McDermott et al. Nature Medicine paper from Emotion 150, a trial of Bevatezo versus Snitinib versus Atezo. And, you know, he did this really beautiful distillation of the genomics, you know, really teasing out an angiogenic signature, an inflammatory signature. Well, where is all of that now, and how, how is that kind of moving forward in the kidney cancer clinics? You're asking me, or? I'm going to ask you. Oh, <laughs> that was your paper. Oh, oh great. <laughs> yeah, so th that work was, you know, um, certainly exciting to be part of, and the scientists at Genentech that led it, you know, deserve a lot of credit for actually trying to tease out, you know, what are the different subsets of kidney cancer, what are, how do they respond to a variety of different treatments, um, and they were willing to, you know, um, put a lot of time and, and money into that ex exploration, and they took it a step further in the phase three trial, as you guys know, and in the phase three trial, with, which was clinically disappointing of a Tezobev versus Sunitinib, um, you know, that's not an approved regimen, um, the, the translational data, the correlative studies are even more interesting. They were able to subset, they think, kidney cancer into even more cohorts. Um, you know, based on biology, which and, and in some ways bolstered the early results of Emotion 150 by suggesting there's a group that are angio-high, this so-called VEGF-driven tumors, as Tian was talking about, that really across trials seem to benefit well from VEGF therapy alone. Um, whether they get an added benefit from VEGF PD-1, I'm not sure we know, but they certain, we certainly are bit much better now than we were five years ago at identifying that VEGF-driven patient. For sure, whether we can identify a pure IO group, I think we're getting closer. You know, there's obviously m multiple groups working with multiple gene signatures to try to get there. And I think if we try hard enough, we can. Um, it's a little more complicated in kidney cancer, as you know, because our tumors are very heterogeneous and our tissue collection is more difficult. But we need to push in this direction, even if we don't figure out in the metastatic setting, we need it for adjuvant decision-making, for sure. Um, you know, and I think we can get there. But then when you mix VEGF and PD-1, I think coming up with the selection criteria for both <laughs> biologies is almost impossible, I personally think. Not that you guys shouldn't try to do it, and you know, you're young and energetic, and you should try to figure it out. Um, but I think it's going to be hard, because you're essentially trying to take two of the major biologies that drive kidney cancer, you're fusing the therapy together. It's going to be hard to say which is the group that needs both drugs, you know. But have at it. I hope you guys can, can sort it so, out. And Tian, I'd like to hear what you think. If on this. I could add to that, certainly, you know, I, I think having the landscape and subtyping of kidney cancer has been really important. And, and until we do the prospective uh, patient selection, treatment, and, and figuring out the right um, options and randomizing them to the different combinations that we have now, um, I don't think we'll get there, right? So the retrospective analyses are not going to uh, teach us enough. So 
uh, if we can use these, uh, the information we've learned from all the emission trials and use that biology to push forward into our prospective trials, I think that's where we're going. I think the tricky thing to build on what Tian was saying is I completely agree with her that the good risk group is probably that VEGF driven group and probably benefits from VEGF. The question is how much does PD-1 add in that setting? Or would you be just as well off doing the sequence of the two? You know, because the sequence clearly improves survival, um, but, the, but what does the combo provide? And I think we were hoping in the early days that blocking VEGF would enhance the immune response to the tumor, and we'd see more of a prolonged immune effect, so the, those curves would look flatter, for example. We'd be able to stop treatment in more patients. And to a certain extent, we may see that, like the CR rate, for example, which you guys highlighted, is certainly impressive. Um, but will we be able to, you know, did we really succeed in what we were trying to do? I'm not sure that the data is showing us that mm. yet. Uh, and, uh, you know, in the favorable risk population, right, if we're not extending so that the cohorts are very similar in terms of overall survival, so sort of piggybacking on your prior point of what are the patient's goals and if it's time off treatment or just, um, less toxicity over time, you know, I think immunotherapy approaches might be, um, pure immunotherapy approaches might be better for that particular patient in terms of selection. Um, I don't think your views are heresy, David. <laughs> uh, you know, it's certainly a small population, but if we talk through their goals and all the treatment options, there are some patients who say, you know, it being EVO might make sense for them, right, right. in that upfront setting. And if we don't know which exactly will ultimately win out, then one after another may prove just as good as using both upfront. Um, the other th thing I worry about with our VEGFIO combinations early and, and using both mechanisms is that we run out of options at some point right. um, because these patients are seeing three, four, five lines of treatment and you know we're always searching for what it, are they resistant to and how can I sequence the next line of therapy. Right. No question. So, so I've got a zinger for you here, David. Okay, this is uh, this is a good one. So this okay. patient comes into your clinic, yes, okay, sir. with favorable risk disease. Well, as it says here on the slide, and says, "I got McDermott et al. Nature Medicine. I got my sequencing done, yep. and I fall into this angiogenic category." Would you still suggest that patient receive Nevo Ipi up front? Uh, well, okay, so that's a world we don't live in right now. Let's, let's, but let's I say, would imagine yeah. well, that I RNA. I, I can imagine can that RNA sequencing in the next three to five years might be part of, say, foundation testing. So what you're describing is not inconceivable. That said, there's still going to be some overlap. These biologies are not pure. So even though that um, in a good risk person, they might be very much VEGF driven, there's still gonna be a subset of those patients that are gonna get some benefit from IO. And knowing that they're good risk, they don't have s symptoms, they may end up on VEGF, but we can get them there. You you're not worried about missing an opportunity in that patient. So I would still go for trying to get a, a long-term benefit, trying to get a remission with immune therapy, knowing that I can salvage that patient for sure mm. with CABO. I'm not going to miss the window or with TiVo or with, you know, Lymvatinib. Any of these drugs are going to work after Epinevo fails. As long as you don't stick on the PD-1 for too long, 
you know, I think you can get most of those patients, most of those patients there. But you're probably right that they would probably do just as well with VEGF, you know. So, so I know that seems like a, you know, perhaps somewhat implausible scenario, okay? But Tian, it, it actually leads to a very, I think, practical question, which is, you know, now there are some investigators who are taking a stab at this question. How can we use McDermott et al. Nature Medicine 2018? Was it 2018? Yes, to, to, to actually treat my patients, right? So Brian Reaney, you know, I give him a lot of credit for this. He's designed a study called the Optic Protocol in which patients are going to be treated either with Nevo-Ipi or Cabo-Nevo. Um, and I believe he's actually doing sequencing up front, characterizing their profile based on the emotion data. And he has some hypotheses based around um, the, the profile that results. Is it worth it for us as investigators to tackle that approach, or should we just move on to other questions, looking at new targets, et cetera? Well, what do you think, Tian? Well, you know, to, uh, I, I personally think that unless we actually do that careful prospective selection and randomizing or selecting and saying you're inflamed, we need to use pure immunotherapy targets, uh, until we actually do those prospective studies, we're not going to move forward as a field for molecular selection, right? Um, so I, I agree that we, we can put efforts toward novel targets and um, you know, mechanisms of resistance and trying to overcome, but we also should uh, place some emphasis on Brian's trial with um, prospective molecular selection so that we can actually answer these questions for the field. And what do you think, David? You and Brian and I were all good friends. You expressed a little bit of, you know, perhaps, you know, nihilism about the study. What, what do you think? No, no, I, uh, I, so those, as I agree with Tian, we need to do more of those studies. They need to be bigger. So that would be my only concern with that trial. Okay. How, with the size of the trial. But the reason it's critically important is even if we never figure out what to do with metastatic patients based on a biopsy, because the tumors by that point are too complex, we need this data to move to the adjuvant setting because there we've got new therapies. We're going to try to build on them, but we're going to be building on them in patients who are probably, some of whom are probably already cured. And then that risk benefit that Tien showed is really out of whack if we're, if we're causing side effects in those patients who probably didn't have cancer. So this work will educate that work and improve outcomes for patients. I, I like that. I mean, I think that that's a very logical argument about how you know some of this information might permeate into adjuvant therapy. Um, so I'm going to keep uh, just heading right through this and have a discussion around something that's really come up uh, quite a bit in our Q&A. We're going to walk through now what we would do beyond frontline treatment. Um, so you know, I'm just going to highlight some of the data sets that I find you know somewhat interesting in this particular context. Uh, things that we've done with existing regimens to sort of tinker with dosing. Uh, some of the questions in the Q&A here reflect what we would do to sort of optimize dose for patients. Could we start at lower doses of a TKI, for instance? And this study really took a stab at that question. So this is a randomized phase two study. Uh, it was actually an FDA-mandated trial that compared a dose of lenvatinib at 14 milligrams with everolimus at 5 milligrams to lenvatinib at 18 milligrams with everolimus at 5 milligrams. And of course, len-18 is what we use in the clinic in the second-line setting. Um, so, so this particular study, I think, asked a very relevant clinical question. It's a 300-patient study, which is not a small trial, but maybe not big enough to address the primary endpoint, which was a non-inferiority design based around toxicity. 
We ultimately didn't see any significant difference in toxicity using 18 milligrams versus 14 milligrams. If you look at these curves and if you really try to pick them apart, you might see some subtle differences as well that really sort of seem to suggest that lindatinib 18 is still the way to go. You might compromise efficacy to some extent by going with the 14 milligram dosing. Overall survival, again, is, is quite similar between the two arms. One study that I think we need to really sort of focus on as a kidney cancer community, and, and some of the questions in the Q&A poll here really reflect new targeted therapy options, is this one. This is the data from the TiVo3 trial. Um, David uh, was one of the co-chairs of this particular study. Um, it's now published in the Lancet Oncology, and uh, we, we as a group have been doing a lot to sort of put out some additional data from this particular trial. Um, and this was a study that really addresses what I think is an unmet need in advanced kidney cancer. This takes individuals who have had two or three prior lines of treatment and randomizes them to receive tavazinib or serafinib. Now, this study was powered to demonstrate an improvement in progression-free survival uh, with tavazinib over serafinib, and it certainly did that. And as you can see from these Kaplan-Meier curves here, you know, again, this isn't, you know, the frontline setting. This, these are patients that have gotten two or three prior treatments. I was actually quite impressed that if you look at sort of the, the tail of this curve, if you will, there's a subset of patients on tavazinib that are really deriving persistent benefit. Um, my experience in the clinic with this regimen sort of mirrors what you see in the top right-hand side uh, with these tornado plots. Um, and while you can see that things like hypertension and fatigue are somewhat comparable, there's a lot less in those really bothersome day-to-day -day toxicities like diarrhea, hand-foot syndrome, nausea, vomiting. This has really been true to my experience in the clinic, and I've, I've heard this from many other colleagues as well. I encourage you to take a look at a poster that me and David and other co-authors are presenting on Saturday at the meeting. Um, and this really takes what you see in that Kaplan-Meier curve in the top left and extends the duration out almost twofold to the four-year mark. And, and one thing that you'll appreciate in looking at that data, and right now it's in tabular format in the abstract, is that, again, that benefit with tavazinib really holds over time. So, you know, Cabonevo, as I'd mentioned, tends to be my upfront regimen. I'm actually really sort of sequencing tavazinib further and further up in, um, in line of therapy. This is a summary of the data from the trial. Um, updated results show response rate more than double with tavazinib over serafinib. Uh, and just as uh, highlighted in that tornado plot there, there really seems to be a better tolerability profile with this agent um, over serafinib. And, and just to reiterate at the bottom there, this agent is approved for relapse or refractory advanced kidney cancer after two or more prior th systemic therapies. Now, what about combination therapies? We really focused a lot of our discussion at the outset um, and reflecting on frontline regimens uh, on Cabonevo, Linvatinib Pembrolizumab, Axipembro. Uh, there are other possibilities here with emerging TKIs and other immune uh, therapy partners. Uh, so this is a data for Tavazinib and Nivolumab in combination. This was run by Laurence Albige and is now published in the Annals of Oncology. Uh, my fellow uh, Luis in the audience wrote a very nice commentary on this in the Annals of Oncology. Um, but this was a 25-patient uh, study that demonstrated, I think, you know, an impressive uh, partial response rate, 52%, CR rate of 4%, uh, and you can see the Kaplan-Meier curves off there to the right. Maybe the most important thing about this trial is it's now morphed into a phase three clinical trial called the TNEVO2 study, um, and this is going to be presented in the trials in progress on, on Saturday. Uh, I encourage you to look at the design. This is really going to get at what David had alluded to earlier, this data void area. If we've treated a patient with immune therapy in the frontline setting, would they potentially benefit from immunotherapy as second or third line? 
So now we're going to get to what I think may be the most exciting uh, part of uh, this lecture today, although I think we've had a lot of great conversations. And we're, we're going to have Dr. Zhang talk about you know, sort of the morphing uh, frontline setting. And uh, Dr. McDermott's going to highlight some of the opportunities in the refractory setting. So uh, Tian, I'll turn it over to you first. Great. Thank you, Monty. All right, so next generation first line trials in metastatic renal cell carcinoma. This is a topic that's near and dear to my heart as I think through our trial portfolios nearly every day. And we've really come quite a ways, I think, from our sunitinib controlled trials um, in the last five, six years to now uh, benchmarking and controlling our phase three trials using immunotherapy-based combinations. So you see that control cohort on the bottom. These are all patients with, patient, uh, with clear cell metastatic measurable disease and no prior systemic therapies going on to treatment. They're often stratified based on IMDC risk score because we know how that important that is in in terms of outcomes, the region of the world, and performance status. And these patients are randomized now to either the control immunotherapy-based combination, or, uh, and I've, we've highlighted some of these studies um, uh, here for you, um, uh, nivolumab, cabozantinib, um, and an adaptive design based on pedigree, um, a trial that we lead in the uh, Alliance Cooperative Group. There's a triplet study using uh, belzutifen, lenvatinib, and pembrolizumab be um, uh, benchmarked on lenvatinib with pembrolizumab, that's now open and accruing in the US. Uh, and then there's a triplet study that has already finished accrual, the COSMIC-313 study with ipilimumab, nivolumab, and cabosantinib. And that uh, recently completed accrual, and so we're awaiting results from COSMIC-313. And then finally, the other uh, cooperative group study, the SWOG study that's ongoing is PROBE, and this is asking a very different question of timing of consolidated nephrectomy after patients start their immunotherapy regimens. Um, but I think all very important questions uh, to ask as we start to think beyond the doublets in the frontline setting and also thinking about patients with de novo metastatic disease and uh, the outcomes that with consolidated nephrectomy. Um, and so all of these patients are generally treated until disease progression, unacceptable toxicities, or a response endpoint. And I would point out that in pedigree, uh, there is a secondary endpoint of uh, one-year complete responses with prospective discontinuation. Uh, and I believe it is the first study with a, a prospective um, response assessed um, discontinuation endpoint to um, uh, Dr. McDermott's point of you know, thinking through patients who uh, are able to stop treatment and come off treatment with treatment-free survival intervals uh, will be able to study that population more in depth. Um, we also uh, have another trial that's completed and thinking about the IL-2 pathway. So uh, heart, um, thinking through our, our past cytokine uh, successes with high-dose IL-2 um, in the 1990s and early 2000s, um, reformulating IL-2 in a, a, a pegylated form, the Bempeg-Galdus-Lucan or Nectar-214. Um, we saw an objective response rate um, of 71% uh, with this combination with nivolumab um, in the PIVOT-02 study, and it was generally well tolerated. Um, the PIVOT-09 study now has um, uh, finished accruals. Uh, this is a phase three study in the first line metastatic setting, um, uh, benchmarked against sunitinib or cabozantinib and uh, with the combination of nivolumab and bempegaldus-lucan. So I think all of us are looking forward to seeing the results of this study that uh, really harnesses um, what interleukin-2 can do for our patients. 
We're also excited to think through more HIF2 alpha inhibition. Uh, we mentioned earlier the, the triplet um, study in the frontline setting, um, but HIF2 alpha um, in the biology here was certainly elucidated um, uh, within the Bill Kalin's lab um, and thinking, uh, and Belzudafen as a molecule um, developed within uh, Peloton has come through uh, UT Southwestern uh, with very uh, nice uh, disease responses. So a phase one, two study Show that belzudafen alone, given at 120 milligrams once daily for these patients, had an objective response rate of 25%, with 14 um, patients having, having confirmed partial responses. And you see the waterfall plot highlighted here. Um, of, of these patients who had responses, the majority had responses for more than six months, um, and with mo most common toxicities being anemia and hypoxia, but generally very well tolerated in our clinical experiences. Um, Belzudafen also has shown um, good uh, disease uh, control and responses in patients who are pretreated um, uh, with prior uh, VEGF inhibition um, for patients with renal cell carcinoma in combination with uh, cabozantinib. Um, and the preliminary analysis from cohort two of the phase two study with patients having prior immunotherapy and less than prior, two or fewer prior therapies for metastatic cancer uh, showed uh, 86.5, um, at least some reduction in uh, target lesion sizes. And so this formulates the, the basis for the ongoing phase three study um, that is uh, randomizing patients uh, to either uh, belzudafen or everolimus um, in the um, uh, post-treatment, uh, post-frustline treatment uh, setting. And uh, we look forward, um, and this trial is currently enrolling, and, and we certainly uh, await those results um, to see the uh, effect of belzudafen in that uh, highly refractory space. Um, and, you know, the Cosmic O2 study, I think, was a, a, quite a well-designed study in terms of thinking about combination approaches. Uh, David alluded to earlier about thinking about cabozantinib and atezolizumab in the post-treatment uh, setting, um, treatment refractory setting. And uh, Cosmic O2, uh, O2-1 showed in clear cell disease uh, very nice um, objective responses over uh, over 50% of patients had um, partial responses or better, um, as you see on the left, and in the right, um, a good amount of, um, about a third of patients or so um, having partial responses are better uh, in the non-clear cell, renal cell carcinoma space. And so that certainly this sets up uh, the CONTACT-03 study, which is a phase three study in this refractory space um, for patients who are previously treated uh, and have immunotherapy refractory disease um, now being randomized to either cabozantinib at 60 milligrams daily or the combination of cabozantinib with atezolizumab. And certainly this will give us um, much more data, I think, um, for the post-IO-treated patient in, in terms of thinking about uh, sequential therapies and adding in the layer of uh, PDL1 blockade. All right, and I think we'll turn it back over to you, Montini. Sure, sure. You know what I'm going to do is this is such great fodder for discussion. Um, you know, I'm going to put this slide up here that you showed us, Tian. Um, and and I love the pedigree approach, which is which is your approach, the sort of adaptive design, right? So you know, patient goes on to frontline treatment, and sort of this risk-adapted fashion, they go on to receive potentially additional cabozantinib on top of their nevo, you know, in, in the you know sort of quasi second-line setting, if you will, right? My question to you, and I'll pose this to either UTN or, or David, is. 
with these other trials, how much is too much? I'm just looking at that, you know, lenvatinib, belzutifan, pembrolizumab, nevo, cabo, cabo, ipi. Is it too much for patients to tolerate? What, what do you think, Tian? It's a lot, and certainly we'll see the, uh, whether there are some overlapping toxicities in that frontline space and whether the toxicities are worth right, the upfront benefit from these triplets. Um, as you alluded to, so pedigree certainly is almost a triplet in, in sequential form, ipinevo followed by uh, the potential for nevocabo and randomization. Um, and you know, I am a little biased because I, I uh, treat lots of patients on pedigree now. Um, but you know, and I think when we're thinking about people who need triplets in the frontline setting, um, uh, in my mind, they may be patients who are, have more symptomatic disease, who need some early control, but also thinking, hopefully, for that durable uh, tail of the curve um, with our immunotherapy combinations. I'd love to hear David's um, thoughts about this too. Yeah, and if I can add just a little context, is, you know, David, I think part of the general approach as I synthesize, you know, what you, what you told us is that, you know, you're looking to sort of potentially even, you know, minimize the, you know, sort of downstream therapy for the patient, get them to these treatment-free intervals. This seems to be a bit of a different premise. Uh, what do you think? Yeah, this is the kitchen sink premise. Yeah. For the, for at least trials two and three, I think I agree with Tian. Both pedigree and probe are important and adds ask clinically relevant questions that we're going to be, we deal with a lot in the clinic. It's going, to be, it's going to be good to have prospective data on some of those questions um, because we're always sort of tinkering without data right now. I think, but for the Belzutivan trial and the Ipi-Nevo-Cabo trial, um, there are issues with how much is too much, but also, you know, what is the evidence um, that these drugs add to one another. So for example, if you ask the question, how much does HIF inhibition add to VEGF blockade? Right now, there's no randomized evidence that suggests it adds anything. Um, but we have this phase three trial. Um, you know, so that's, uh, to me, I would, have, I would have done the randomized trial of VEGF, HIF versus VEGF first. Um, but that's not what we're getting. And I think it's up to us as investigators to insist on some of this information before we support some of these large trials because um, that's 1,400 patients, you know. We, should, we need to ask questions that are and confirm results, you know, based on solid preliminary data. I don't think we have it, at least with that triplet at the moment. A great, great response. And I, I definitely sort of am thinking along the same lines there in many respects. You know, David, I mean, I know you've thought a lot about, you know, sort of the design of these trials and so forth. And, you know, these have conventional endpoints, these triplet therapy trials, PFS and OS. The bar is so high now, yep. right? I mean, you think about the Lenpember response rate is 71%. I mean, how much higher can we get, right, uh, in this particular context? And are we going to look at, you know, a trial where we hit, uh, you know, a response rate of 80% with the triplet combination and say that that's a win, you know? Are, are there different ways that we can start thinking about de-escalating therapy? Are there trials you think that we need to do to sort of see if we can pare down the extent of treatment that we're using? Well, I think Tien's trial, the pedigree trial, gives us a way forward, you know, stopping treatment sooner. You know, that's one way to improve treatment-free survival is to stop the treatment. And stopping it in patients who are in response is something we should explore more in randomized ways. The problem with that is a lot of patients don't want to be randomized off drug when they're responding and their side effects are under control. But someone needs to do that trial of how much is necessary 
uh, because, if, so for example, if, if we're adding three and four drugs and we're seeing improved overall survival and we're able to create more remission, sort of like a lymphoma, like an RCHOP model, well, I think we'd all say, great, this is where we need to be. But if we're, just in, if we're just raising the bar incrementally around response rate and PFS and OS is no different, then people are gonna push back and say, you know, when, this is too, you know, the costs are not worth the benefits. Certain places are not gonna pay for it. You know, so, and that, that brings me to the COSMIC trial. Like you can almost guess the result of that trial right now. That trial should, unless there's a toxicity signal, it almost certainly will meet its primary endpoint that early endpoint of improved PFS, but is OS gonna be in the, you know, greater, less than one? Maybe, but probably not, if patients can cross over to get VEGF, and then what? You know, do you give a triplet that doesn't have an OS benefit? Some people will say yes, and, you know, particularly payers will say, not so fast. Yeah, yeah. the toxicity and the cost certainly in those triplets are, are bothersome. Right, so we need to move the field in the right direction and part of that is we need to insist on the right trials being done and the right endpoints being looked at. You know, I, I wonder too with all these novel, you know, immune targets coming out, TIGIT, LAG3, etc. You know, what if we were to find a way to replicate the response rates, the PFS, the OS that we're seeing here and, and match what we're seeing with contemporary regimens, but maybe bring down toxicity. Is there a path forward for those regimens? Or are they gonna have to demonstrate an improvement overall this already very high bar of progression-free survival, response rate, overall survival? Uh, what do you think? Yeah. Oh, it's a, a great question, and I do hope we get there uh, with our novel targets and, and that are promising. Uh, and you know, we won't know until we try and uh, actually do the studies. Um, as of this moment, you know, I, I think we have sufficient phase one, phase two data. Um, none of them uh, are quite coming up, up against um, our standard of care approaches in the frontline setting. Um, I, I, I hope the, those trials are, are under, you know, development and uh, that we will be able to use some of these novel targets going forward. Um, but I, I agree with you, um, until we see that synergistic effect um, and really add to um, the frontline uh, responses, um, you know, how much of an increment above 70% objective responses, right, is enough to, to offset the toxicities of these um, potential uh, triplets. Um, I think that's still to be determined um, whether that's clinically meaningful um, to, to use these triplets in the upfront setting. Sure, sure. David, what do you think? I mean, you, you, you're really kind of at the forefront of a lot of these immunotherapy trials. And let's say it was, you know, sort of a triplet of, you know, PD-1, I'll just make this up, you know, LAG-3 and TIGIT that looked really outstanding. Great idea. What's that? Great idea, Monty. Great. Uh, so, uh, Let's do so, it. and, and <laughs> what, what if what if it looked outstanding in the clinic, but you weren't quite sure that it would necessarily supersede, you know, the PFS OS and response rate that you see? Is there a path forward for that if we can produce similar but not superior results? Right. I, many good questions within that question. I think if you look at melanoma, which I also do, um, there are ways. It's almost easier to build on up pure IO regimens and it is these hybrid regimens. So for example, um, PD-1 plus LAG-3 is superior to PD-1 in advanced melanoma. So the LAG-3 blockade with 
could be explored in kidney cancer in a pure IO regimen. If you added that to a VEGF PD-1 regimen, the benefit might get lost, and improving those early endpoints with IO regimens is really hard, mm -hmm. particularly when the when targeted therapy is the comparator arm. So building on IO, comparing it to IO, I think makes sense. But the, the weakest part of my endpoint argument, and there were probably many weak points, but the weakest point from a clinical development point is it takes years for the endpoints that I focus on to emerge. And both patients and investigators and you know, companies, they want early endpoints. They want an early look. Um, and coming up with a endpoint that is um, sort of predicts what's going to happen at the tail is important for the entire field of immuno-oncology. Otherwise, a lot of these novel agents are just going nowhere, you know, because they're never going to be able to win on those early endpoints that we focus on so much. Okay, great. So a lot of questions here in the prompt. I think we're going to take this program right until the buzzer at 8.30, if that's okay. Um, you know, so one question, and I'll, I'll sort of try to phrase this in the context of a theoretical patient, okay? 58-year-old um, uh, patient who, you know, approaches you in the clinic and says, Doc, you know, I really want lenvatinib and pembrolizumab up front, okay? Metastatic disease with, uh, let's say, um, mild symptoms, you know, painful shoulder metastasis, multiple pulmonary mets. Um, he says, I, I want to get lenvatinib pembrolizumab, but I'm a little bit scared of the toxicity. What do you say I just start at 10 milligrams instead of 20? What do you think, Tian? Oh, it's a good question. And, you know, certainly um, overcoming that resistance or early fear of toxicity is one of the challenges we face um, in selecting early uh, frontline therapies. Um, I would personally be amenable to it. And, you know, let's start you low and go uh, high if you tolerate it well, if the, the alternative is not starting at all, right? So I'd rather get some drug into patients than nothing at all. So if that's the compromise that we're setting in order to get him uh, some effect of lenvatinib, I'm okay with that to say, hey, but uh, on the trial, we're, we're all uh, cognizant on the trial and the efficacy uh, that we saw, the 70% objective responses was at 20% starting. So our, our goal is to get you there to 20, uh, 20 milligrams. Uh, but, you know, if that's our bar to get you started on some drug, I, I'd rather, you know, let's Let's get that drug into you and, and get, you know, get you seeing what the side effects look like. And there are people who tolerate it well and you know, will escalate, and then there are people who, who don't. And then that's the, the non-purist in me uh, that will sort of work with patients um, and meet them at, at their point. So you'd allow for some flexibility in dosing. David, how about you in that upfront setting? Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, the trials are not nimble enough to allow for that, but in reality, we shouldn't be treating patients at the MTD of these drugs. We should treat them at the minimum effective dose, um, which, you know, find their dose, what Tian said, and starting low and getting up to their, you know, their, their most tolerable dose um, is much more likely to keep them on the drug longer term and get that disease control. Otherwise, you, if you overshoot, if you go to what the trial said, you're likely to stop. I guess in the clear trial, maybe up to a third of patients had to have a dose reduction or interruption. And sometimes patients don't want to try it again, even though you know as a clinician that you could get away with a lower dose if they tried it and all. Some patients back off. It's, you know, I think Tian's approach makes a lot of sense. Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I, I tend to be maybe a little bit more dogmatic about dosing in the frontline setting. 
you know, I, I think that, uh, you know, when we're talking to you know, our colleagues in the community who are starting to use these regimens, you know, I think they've really got to make sure that when they apply a regimen, they know that that, you know, 70% response rate with Lenpembro might be compromised if you shave down the dose, or th those endpoints that you're targeting might be mitigated to some extent. So, I, you know, in that scenario, what I've generally tried to do is sort of counsel the patient. If they're really fixated on adverse effects, maybe go with what I perceive to be a better tolerated regimen up front, like Cabonevo. You know, I've tried to sort of steer the conversation a little bit in that direction. Um, it's, it's a complicated issue, though, isn't it? Um, you know, another thing that's sort of come up here, and, you know, this is, this is maybe a, a sort of clinical experience question. I've worked with some of the uh, HIF-2 inhibitors that are currently in pipeline right now, but have not actually treated a patient as yet with belzutifan. Um, can you guys share your experiences with belzutifan? How was it from the standpoint of tolerability? Give, you know, folks here a sense of the boots on the ground impression of the drug. Uh, David, have you... Um, I've had a handful of patients on uh, belzutifan for the VHL indication, uh, and uh, truthfully, they've tolerated it very well. Um, if, uh, as a clinician, I'm, I'm a bit concerned um, and uh, monitoring carefully for hypoxia, um, and I, I think that is a symptom that, or in, and sign that patients were, are sensitive to, and so we've been bringing them back frequently to monitor and. Uh, these patients have actually been tolerating it very well. Um, I haven't noticed any cytopenias yet, um, so generally, you know, very well tolerated in my hands. Yeah, no, I would agree. I think it's one of the cleanest drugs that's been in clinical development for kidney cancer ever. And when a patient goes from whatever, drug X, to belzutifan, they usually feel better. Um, very narrow list of toxicities. You know, Tien mentioned one of the more difficult ones, which is on target, and patients can get hypoxic, usually it, that responds very quickly when you stop the treatment, but that you know can be an intimidating side effect in the clinic. Um, but anemia is another one, which is also on target because you're lowering erythropoietin levels when you block the HIF transcription factor, but also very fixable anemia. You can give them erythropoietin and they come right up and there's not a whole lot else which gives it a nice single agent toxicity profile plus the ability to combine. So I think we know the answer to can you combine HIF with a variety of other things, and the answer is yes, which is good. What we don't know is how much it adds to those things because we only have single you know, arm trials. We, don't have, we need more randomized trials to see how much it adds. Well said, well said. And, and you know, uh, I'll just uh, kind of bring this home with uh, something that was just announced yesterday, I think, on clinicaltrials.gov. This is a randomized phase three study in the adjuvant setting. And I think we all probably saw something like this coming, looking at pembrolizumab plus or minus belzutifan. Um, Tian, what do you think? Is it too early for us to be pushing belzutifan into the adjuvant setting? Do you think it's a reasonable study design? Sure, it's certainly a study that's underway, and whether we're ready for it or not, it's coming. So uh, I agree with David. I haven't seen the preclinical synergistic effect or immunomodulatory effect of belzutifan. I'd love to see that data if it's there um, and, and, and see. But I think the trial um, is already active, you know, ongoing in, in terms of development, and it's going to sort of shape our next um, adjuvant uh, landscape. And what do you think, David? I mean, we've had this whole discussion around de-escalation, making sure that we've got, you know, these, these uh, synergistic effects demonstrated uh, to our level of satisfaction. Is it too early? Yeah, they, the development of this trial just shows you 
if you haven't known it already, how little people listen to me. (laughs) (laughs) Meaning it could be a great idea, right? Because we know the HIF inhibitor is actually more active in the early setting than it is late. If you look at the data in patients with von Hippel-Lindau syndrome, which are very prone to renal tumors that are small, the data there is ridiculously good in controlling those tumors, which in some ways may be similar to small renal masses or early kidney cancer. So there's certainly a rationale for HIF inhibition early. But if you ask the question, does HIF inhibition add anything to immune therapy in any context, mouse, human, the answer is we don't know. Yeah. I mean, the reason TN doesn't know is because nobody knows. Right, <laughs> we'll right. Do no, the fair trial enough. anyway, and let's see. Well, you know, should be interesting. Excellent. No, this, is, this has been a really great discussion. I, I think I'll probably, you know, close with just an additional question or two. You know, this is, this is something that I've sort of been stewing over, and it's reflected in some of the questions here in the Q&A. So let's say we take my, my standard patient on the clinic. So they, you know, up front for metastatic disease will get cabonevo. I started to use more tavazinib, you know, right after that in the second line setting, right? When they get to third line, right, let's say this patient is still reasonably fit, but has certain exclusions from clinical trials. I don't know, maybe their hemoglobin's a touch too low or, you know, actually to make it more salient to what I want to discuss, let's say they have some, you know, newly evolving brain mets that put them out of window for a study. Okay, so you can't answer with a clinical trial for this one. Okay, good. Um, so in, in that patient, you know, uh, would you go for lenvatinib everolimus? Would you try to expose them perhaps to axitinib as third-line treatment? Or would you try to get compassionate use uh, belzutifan for that patient? I've heard of this happening, you know, in, in practices nowadays. What are your thoughts? Oh. Oh, Tian, Tian, go for it. Oh, well, I, you know, to be honest, I would, uh, if good functional status, I think there's a bit more data for lenvatinib everolimus in that setting. Um, and, you know, if, if they were more frail and we were thinking, you know, maybe a HIF inhibitor might be helpful, then um, certainly thinking about belzudafin and trying to get the off-label use um, uh, could be an option. Um, but we have a standard of care option, and lenvatinib everolimus is a fine choice for fit, healthy patients. Yeah. What do you think, David? No, I would agree. I think in that patient, you can argue that person needs a response. So you go with the combo if they can tolerate it. It's more likely to give them a response. I think when we look at the, this is a prediction, which is probably worthless, the, the randomized phase three of belsudafan versus everolimus, you would expect it to be positive, but my guess is the activity in that setting, which is this setting, is gonna be less, you know, because if patients who failed two prior VEGFs are probably less likely to be sensitive to an HIF inhibitor. You know, going back to the story Tam was talking about before, is like, are these VEGF-driven tumors, yes or no? Well, a VEGF-driven tumor is also a HIF-driven tumor. Third line, less activity of HIF, I would predict. Okay, and Come back in 2027 and you can, you can talk it over. that was right, talk it over. <laughs> David, excellent, excellent. No, I appreciate that. Um, any other agents that we haven't talked about today, and this, we're in the closing minute here, that you're excited about, that you want our folks in the audience to just get a glimpse of. Tian? Oh, uh, I, I'm, you know, I, I think thinking through mechanisms of resistance as patients get, uh, go beyond frontline combination approaches is really important. Um, 
Uh, I'd love to see um, uh, treatments that increase tumor antigen expression, for example, um, come through and really thinking through you know, these mechanisms that might affect and how do we re-engage the immune system and reactivate it um, when people have these uh, slow-growing um, resistance patterns. And so uh, in my mind, in anything that might push the field forward in those settings as people get two, three, four lines of treatment um, will be helpful. David, how about you? You know, building on that, I completely agree. I think there's a lot we can learn from tumors, particularly resistant specimens, about what to do next. Uh, what are the targets we need to hit? We're also developing, we, the larger field is developing engineered immune cells in that setting that are showing some promise in other tumor types. So CAR T cells could make sense to the proper patient. You're, I know you're exploring that, Monty. Uh, TIL therapy, where you take the immune cells from the tumor and energize them in the lab and give them back. There's clear evidence of efficacy both in melanoma but also in lung cancer with that kind of approach. So for the highly motivated um, patient, you know, hopefully that will be an option in, you know, at the next you know, 2024 maybe. We should explore those options of sort of escalating therapy in some ways like we do with testicular cancer in the right patient, you know, being more aggressive for those patients with those newer treatments that are showing promise elsewhere. You know, the field is just changing so rapidly in advanced kidney cancer, and I really want to thank you, Tian, and you, David, for helping summarize it today. This activity is certified by Medical Learning Institute, Incorporated. This activity is developed with our educational partners, PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education, and the Kidney Cancer Research Alliance. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash TRX860. This educational activity is supported through medical education grants from Aveo Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, Bristol-Myers Squibb, Azi Incorporated, Exelixis Incorporated, and Merck & Company Incorporated.